The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. I've titled this morning's message, When God Isn't Enough. When God Isn't Enough. I don't know how it is with you, but when I read the Bible, I'm often tempted to read the failures of the men and the women in biblical times and just you know, kind of just shake my head at them. You know, all the while thinking, how could they do something so silly? Don't, don't they realize that God is always faithful? Where, where is their trust? Where is their faith? And then, of course, the coup de grace is when I say to myself, I'd never do that. If I'd been in that situation, I would have been different. I would have remained faithful. And that is, of course, a form of spiritual pride. Scratch that. That's not a form of spiritual pride. That is simply raw, undiluted spiritual pride. When we read of biblical men and women sinning in various ways, or when we hear of our contemporaries sinning in similar ways, and we think to ourselves, well, I would never do that. Well, that, my friends, is spiritual pride. We're all tempted, and sometimes we give in to the temptation to think and act in ways that illustrate, even in our own lives, that God isn't enough for us. Have you ever, for example, bought a lottery ticket? Now, I don't think it's something, I don't think buying a lottery ticket is inherently sinful in itself, but the reasons we buy lottery tickets are often sinful. We purchase the lottery ticket because we somehow we're, we're saying that we don't trust God's provision for ourselves, and maybe if I win this lottery, things would be better. We're, we're saying at that moment, God isn't enough. Or maybe you've been tempted to think that if your candidate doesn't win this upcoming election, our nation is headed to the ash heap of history. And so instead of trusting God... We put our trust in a political party, whichever party that may be, but whatever party we think best represents our own understanding of God. You see, when we do that, God isn't enough for us. Or perhaps you've been tempted at work to fudge the numbers just a bit, not because you're trying to cover up some type of wrongdoing or anything like that, but you just want to make yourself or your department look better. You're counting on that good employee review so that you might get the next promotion. In essence, you're putting more trust in your, in your own reputation than in God's reputation. You see, when you do that, God really isn't enough for you. Whatever the scenario, I promise that we've all, every one of us, at one time or another, we've all acted in ways that have illustrated that at that moment in time, God wasn't enough for us. That is, after all, the very nature of sin. And it goes all the way back into the garden. It's, not, it's nothing new. It's, it's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they ate from the forbidden fruit. 
They both disobeyed God. And in that moment, they didn't want God. They wanted to be like God. In that moment, God Himself wasn't enough for them. Today, we're going to be looking at a true story in the life of Israel. And in this story, God Himself isn't enough for the people of Israel. And so, let's hear from the Word of the Lord. If you're there in 1 Samuel 8, say Amen. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 22 verses, but read the whole chapter. Follow along with me as I read, please. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks And you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to a city. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you this day. Thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray, Father, this morning, that in the hearing of your word, that your spirit would accompany the proclamation of the word and that you would do your work 
here among us. Lord, we pray that what we are not, You would make us. What we have not, You would give us. And what we know not, You would teach us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note-taker, my central idea for today's message is this. Failure to give God His proper place in our lives will lead to devastating consequences. Failure to give God His proper place in our lives will lead to devastating consequences. And what I want to do this morning is a little bit different than normal. I want to walk us through the text, explain the story as I go, and then at the end I have five points of application that I want to make from this text into our lives, okay? So we're going to walk through the text, and then we'll have five points of application. So let's start with the text itself. In verse 1, we're told that Samuel was old. He's been serving as a judge over Israel for decades by this point in his life. But again, he's old. And as is often the case, an old man is looking for someone to whom he can pass the torch, so to speak. And very often, the first place to which a man will look to pass his torch is to his own children. This isn't only true of spiritual situations. This is true in just everyday life as well. If you have a family business, sometimes family businesses are passed from one generation to the next generation to the next. It can, be, it can be a wonderful thing to do, a wonderful gift to be able to do that. In Samuel's case, however, he wants to pass down spiritual authority to his sons. And so we're told in verse 1 that Samuel made his sons judges, judges over Israel. And then we're told the names of his sons in verse 2. One was Joel and the other was Abijah. But spiritual leader, while spiritual leadership does require some skill, spiritual leader is foundationally built on character. Character is much more important than skill when it comes to spiritual leadership. And if you doubt my own assessment of that fact, I would just encourage you to read Paul's letter to first, in 1 first Timothy and Paul's letter in Titus. When Paul gives the qualifications for elders or pastors in the church, all of the qualifications, save one of those qualifications, which is the ability to teach, all of them are character qualifications, not skill qualifications. In a similar fashion, judging Israel would require, would, it does require skill, but far more importantly, it requires good character, which unfortunately was an area in which Joel and Abijah are sorely lacking. We're told in verse 3 that the sons didn't walk in the ways of their father. They took bribes and perverted justice. These, my friends, are just the types of sins that disqualify an individual from any type of spiritual leadership. So in verse 4, the elders of Israel... And these would be, the elders in this sense would be the political leaders of Israel. They, they gather together and they come to Samuel at Ramah. They have a legitimate concern about Samuel's sons. But their solution to their concern is wrong-headed. At the end of verse 5, we're told they, they wanted Samuel to appoint, quote, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, there are at least two things wrong with with that phrase, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. First, is that they wanted a human king to start with. This, of course, means that they are rejecting God as their one true king. 
And that, by the way, that's not my interpretation of the facts. That's what God Himself tells us in verse 7. The people are rejecting God as their king. But the second problem with their praise, that they want to be just like all the nations that were surrounding them. Now you might think, what's the problem? What's, what's wrong with that? I mean, it's not a bad thing to want to fit in, right? But listen to me, beloved. Please listen to me. This is exactly the opposite of what God's people are called to be. We're not called to fit in and to be just like everyone else. We are called to be distinct. Or as somebody who was raised on the King James, we are called to be a peculiar people. That's what we're called to be. We're, when people look at us, they ought to see something different about our lives. They ought to see something strange about our lives. We're called to be a peculiar people. But just like the Israelites 3,000 years ago, we still we want to fit in, don't we? We're, all te- we're, we're tempted to want to fit in. We don't want to be labeled as some kind of radical Jesus freak, whether that's in our schools or in our workplaces or in our communities, wherever it might be. And so instead of being peculiar, we want to be just like all the other nations. That's what they wanted. They wanted, hey, give us a king so we can be just like all these other nations. So Samuel, in his frustration and displeasure with the people, Samuel does what any godly person should do in a situation like that. He prays. See that right there at the end of verse 6. He prays to God. And then the Lord answers him in verses 7 through 9. These verses, verses 7, they form for us the climax of this story. This is the most important part of this story. And the Lord tells Samuel in that climax to give the people exactly what they want. He reassures Samuel. He said, they're not, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as their king. And in verse 8, we see that the people, they had forgotten all that God had done for them and bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. Those are the verses that Kaylee read a few moments ago. They'd forgotten all about that. And so God, he recounts how, how the people had forsaken him. They had served other gods. And so he tells Samuel to give them what they want. Give them, give them in fact, exactly what they want. But before, Sam, before you give them what, you want, what they want, I want you to solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who is going to reign over them. Alright, so I want them to go into this with their eyes wide open, if you will. I want them to see what's going to happen. If they really want a human king, give them one. But first tell them what it's going to be like to live under that kingship. And then in verses 10 through 18, Samuel does just that. He, he tells them what to expect from a human king. And I want to point out three things that I noticed that just jumped out at me in the text as I was reading and meditating on that this, this week. And these nine verses, three things jumped out at me. First, six times in these nine verses we hear the phrase, He will take. That's what the king is going to do. The king is going to take, 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 take. That's what, that's what he's going to do. He's going to take your sons, verse 11. He will take your daughters, verse 13. He will take the best of your fields, verse 14. He will take a tenth of your grain, verse 15. He will take your male servants and your female servants, verse 16. And he will take a tenth of your flocks, verse 17. And so over the course of seven of those nine verses, he will take appears six times. Again, take, 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 take. That's the first thing that stands out to me. But what is he going to do? You know, sometimes it's not a bad thing when somebody takes something if they're going to use it for good purposes, right? What is he going to do with those things that he takes? This is the second thing that stands out to me in this passage. 
I hope you see it as well. He's going to take those things and use them for his own benefit. This is right from the text. Look with me. He's going to use those things for his chariots, his horsemen, his ground, his harvest, his implements of wars, his servants, his officers, his work, his slaves. In other words, this man, this king, he's going to bed at night and all he's thinking about is himself. And when he wakes up in the morning, all he's thinking about is himself. And his life, it's me, 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 me. It's a virtual me fest for the king. Anybody want to live under that kind of rule? None of us do. We don't want to live under that kind of rule. We don't, we don't want to be in that type of environment. And if we were in that type of environment, we would want to get out of that environment as quickly as possible. We might even cry out to God. We might say to God, this king of ours, he's mistreating us, God. Can you help us? Which brings me to my third observation from those verses from 10 through 18. Look with me at verse 18. He says, in that day you will cry out because of your king, who you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Here's what's happening. Samuel's telling the people, do you really want a king? Do you, do you really want a guy who's going to take, 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 take? Do you really want a guy who goes to bed in the morning thinking only about himself, wakes up in the morning thinking only about himself? It's me, 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 me all day. Do you, do you want that kind of guy? Is that the kind of king you want? Because if you do, you can have him. But then don't come crying to God when you find out, oops, I've made a mistake. Because at that point, it's going to be too late. At that point, you will have made your proverbial bed and you're going to have to lie in it. Now, to share just a bit honestly about myself is at this point in the story when, I, when, I, when spiritual pride begins to rise up in my life. And I think, man, if I'd been there and I'd been listening to Samuel talk about this, and I would have done what Samuel said. I would, no way! I would, have, I would have been different. I would have been faithful. But the truth of the matter is probably not. I probably would have done the same thing the Israelites did, and frankly, you would have too. Because we're all fallen creatures. We're, we're broken creatures. We're, we're prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. And so in verse 19, we're told that they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Now, listen, please listen to those words. We're not, we're not told simply that they disobeyed Samuel. We're told that they refused to obey. Now, if you have children, you understand that there's a categorical difference, right? If, if your child disobeys you, that's one thing. It's another thing if they look at you, you, know, you tell them to do something, they, you look and they go, I'm not doing that. Right. Those are two different situations and and parenting is going to you're going to have two different responses based on whether they're refusing to obey or whether they simply disobeyed. For the people of Israel, it was a matter of stiff necked calculus. It was saying, I don't care how compelling your argument is. I don't care how biblical your argument is. I will not be swayed. I have already made up my mind. I refuse to obey. That's where they were. And so they demand a king so they can be like all the other nations. They want a king who's going to judge them. They want a king who's going to fight their battles for them. And so the Lord told Samuel in verse 22, for the third time, by the way, in this passage, if you've been counting the third time, he says, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel told them, give them exactly what they want. 
All right? That's our passage. Now I want to make five points of application for us. First point. Godly leaders are given to us for our own good. Godly leaders are given to us for our own good. Our passage starts off today with Samuel old. And as I said a few moments ago, Samuel's been serving and judging Israel now for decades by this point in his life. He's a proven leader in the relatively young life of Israel. He's such a proven leader, in fact, that when the, when the elders of Israel, they decide they want a king, who do they come to to ask for the king? Samuel, right? I mean, he, they, they have so much trust in him. They say, hey, Samuel, we, we think we need a king, and we want you to be the one to appoint us this king. Yet when he, he, meaning Samuel, when he warns them of the dangers of having a human king, they refuse to obey his voice. Now, this should raise an important question in our minds. Why bother having a godly leader if you're not going to listen to his voice in the first place? Right? I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the recurring themes in the book of Judges, and Samuel, again, is called the last of the judges, the first of the prophets. One of the recurring themes in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there are times... When leaders make ungodly and sinful choices, and we need to be aware of that, we need to guard against that, and I'm going to say much more about that in just a moment. But when you have a recognized godly leader at the helm, you should recognize him as a gift from God. Again, this man had been there for decades at this point, serving those people, and they refused to obey him. Now, I have to admit, as I was preparing, I said, this, this is going to sound, this is going to sound self-serving, Coming from the pastor, right? I'm, I'm a leader here. You think, oh, yeah, of course. You think it's important to be, a, you know, give respect to a godly leader. But that's, listen, that's not my goal. Please hear me. That is not my goal. Here, here's chief why that's not my goal. I'm not always going to be your pastor. Okay? I'm not planning, by the way, don't read, don't read anything in there. I'm not like planning on leaving next week or anything. But I'm not going to be your pastor for all the time. I'm not. You may move from this area or I may move from this area. But one, one of these days, I'm not going to be your pastor but wherever God has you in the future or wherever He has me in the future, we all do to remember that leadership in the church is God's idea. It's not man's idea. And so we'd all do well to be more like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Now, if you're unfamiliar with them, let me just just, just a, a pinky nail sketch of them. They were sitting under the preaching and teaching of the Apostle Paul himself. And they went home every evening to examine the Scriptures to see what Paul was saying, if those things were true. And so, beloved, listen, nothing would thrill me more than to see you sitting actively listening to the sermon with your Bibles open in your laps or on your apps, wherever it might be, to have your Bibles open, to see if the things that I'm saying or, or some future pastor, to see if the things we're saying are indeed true and biblical. And in so much as those things are true and biblical, whether they what come out of my mouth or some future pastor, then you ought to rejoice and thank God that you have a godly leader at the helm. That's application point number one. Point number two. I said I would get to this point. We need to be able to distinguish between godly leaders and imposters. We need to be able to distinguish between godly leaders and impossible, uh, uh, imposters. Excuse me. Samuel's sons were a train wreck. Okay? There's no other way of describing it. They were a train wreck. Everybody saw it. They had no business being spiritual leaders in Beersheba. They had disqualified themselves because of their um, sinful character. 
And the elders of Israel were right to come to Samuel and say, hey, we got some issues, so time out with your two boys here. We don't know whether they're right to, to judge us or not. But their solution, their, their, the way they wanted to correct the problem was wrong. Now let me make a contemporary application to us. The members of this church, if you're a member here, the members of this church have a responsibility to ensure that the elders who lead this church are indeed, in fact, godly, qualified men. It's, it's your responsibility as a member to do that. And as members of this church, you have a responsibility to ensure that what is taught from this pulpit or any other teaching um, in this church that is indeed biblical teaching. And I'm going to make that case biblically for you, just very briefly. In Galatians chapter 1, the churches of Galatia were abandoning the true gospel for a false gospel. And Paul had some very strong words for them to say about that. But his hard words weren't directed at the false teachers. His hard words were directed primarily at the congregation who was allowing that type of teaching to go on. He says this to the congregation here. I'm quoting Galatians. You needn't turn there, but just listen. This is Galatians 1.6 if you're a note taker. He said to them, I am astonished that you, speaking to the congregation, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Beloved, brothers, sisters, please listen to me. If I or another future pastor or to paraphrase what Paul says in Galatians 1.8, or if even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the biblical gospel, let that man be accursed. That's, again, that's a paraphrase of Galatians 1.8. In other words, let the one who's preaching a false gospel, let that man go straight to hell and stay there. Now you might think, Oof. You, might, you might think that's a bit harsh, right? Wow, really? Tell that man to go to hell? Yes. Why is he that harsh? Because eternal souls are at stake. That's why we're told in the Scripture, by the way, that not many people should become teachers. Because we're going to incur a stricter judgment. Eternal souls are at stake. And so it's our responsibility as a congregation to distinguish between godly leaders and imposters. And we're not to put up with imposters. That's application point number two. Point number three. We should be careful in what we wish for. <laughs> you know, the people in Israel, they wanted a king. I mean, they wanted a king in a bad way. They, they, had, they had any number of off-ramps, right? Where they could have said, yeah, well, we've reconsidered and maybe it's not the best idea. Uh, they heard all these downsides to having a king, but they still want a king. And so God gives them exactly what they want. And, and how does that turn out for them? How does it turn out for Israel? How does this king thing turn out for Israel? If you're familiar at all with the history of Israel, you can probably name some good kings of Israel. But e even the good kings, even the best of kings, they're still deeply flawed men. You know, right away, probably all of my would think, well, King David, right? King David, he was a, he was a good guy. He was, he was a man after God's own heart. But he was a deeply flawed man. He was an adulterer and a murderer. 
But if you study the history of Israel, you know, you know the kingdom divides after Solomon's, uh, Solomon, which is David's son. The kingdom divides into two kingdoms. The northern king, kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And things just get worse, friends. Things get worse. They get, remember, they get really, really bad. Every now and then when you're reading the scripture, you'll read about an occasional good king in the southern kingdom. But in the northern kingdom, not one. For the entire history of the northern kingdom, there's not one single good king. Every one of them was, was an evil king. God gave the people exactly what they wanted. And it didn't turn out well for them. If you're a student of history, you know it doesn't end there. Matter of fact, we can just turn to the New Testament. And needn't, you needn't turn there, but let's, for those note-takers, this is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You, you hear that opening language? God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts. In other words, there in Romans 1, God gave them exactly what they wanted. And it led them down a path of sin which people still struggle with even to this day. In my opening comments about the sermon, in my illustration, I, I mentioned uh, that sometimes we don't, we, or we rather we do, we demonstrate that God isn't enough for us when we decide to uh, buy a lottery ticket. I'm going to, I consider these stories of true, true, true stories of lottery winners. You can find thousands of these stories online. But these, these, listen to this. If you've always wanted to win the lottery, listen to this. First story is about a guy named Jack. Unlike many lottery winners, Jack, well, he was already wealthy when he won the Powerball um, on Christmas morning in 2002. You think, oh, what a wonderful Christmas present. Um, he chose a lump sum payment. Took home approximately, took home, not before tax, took home $113 million. Merry Christmas, right? It's a lot of money. So he added that money to the money he already had, but unfortunately he learned that winning the lottery changed him more than his previous wealth had. I mean, he did a lot of good work with the money he had. He set up charitable foundations, um, built churches in West Virginia. He gave, he, to the woman who sold him the lottery ticket, he bought her a new house, new car, gave her a load of cash. Nevertheless, the lottery curse, as it is sometimes known, hit him. Because not every state um, allows lottery winners to remain anonymous. And so Jack's win was widely publicized. And as a result, he was deluged by people asking him for money and favors. On two separate occasions, he had more than six figures of cash stolen from his car. Now, why would you put six figures of cash in your car? I don't know. But nevertheless... Two separate occasions had more than six figures of cash stolen from his car. His company was hit by frivolous lawsuits from people who wanted to get access to his deep pockets, and those lawsuits cost him millions of dollars in legal fees. Under the strain of everything, his life started to unravel. He started drinking hard and getting into fights, but that wasn't even by, by far, that wasn't the worst of it. He enjoyed spoiling his granddaughter, a girl named Brandy. He gave her a huge allowance, four cars, but his generosity to her backfired when her wealth attracted a bad crowd. Brandy was later found dead under suspicious circumstances. The case was never solved. And Brandy's mom was found dead seven years after the jackpot was won. Dad insult to injury. His wife divorced him. He lost all the people he loved 
and all the money he won. He later said, and I quote, I wish I'd torn that ticket up. Second story. This one's about a man named William. He won $16.2 million from the Pennsylvania lottery. Again, you might think something like that puts you on easy street. But after cashing in his winnings, his life also took a sharp turn for the worse. He said, and I quote him here, Everyone dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork. He spent his money wildly. His girlfriend claimed, uh, sued, sued him, claiming that they had agreed to split the money if he won. She won in court. He wasn't able to pay her, um, and so they froze his lottery winnings. Um, ultimately, he was only able to sav- only I say only right. He was only able to salvage salvage 2.6 million of his uh, lottery winnings, um, which he immediately spent. He was arrested for assault after firing a shotgun at a man who was pestering him for money, and even worse, his own brother, his own brother hired a hitman to kill him and his wife, so that he could inherit the money. Thirteen, ye- thirteen years later, William died alone and penniless living off of welfare. Last story. A man named Abraham won $40 million from the Florida lottery in 2006. This man was a high school dropout, a convict. He couldn't even read. And then he met a woman named Dee Dee. Dee Dee told him that she wanted to write a story about his experiences. And she also said, you know, by the way, I'll, I'll help you manage your money. Well, he agreed. And immediately she started managing his money and bought for herself a Hummer and a Corvette she took possession of his home. But apparently, for Dee Dee, it wasn't enough just to steal from him, so she decided to kill him and bury his body under a concrete slab at her boyfriend's house. And then she went to the extreme lengths of trying to make it sound like he's still alive. She sent, like, fake messages, uh, text messages from his phone and the like, uh, attempted to bribe his family members to say that, yeah, they'd recently seen him. Uh, she was, of course, eventually discovered, convicted of first-degree murder, he probably would have been better off just sticking to the $5 he had in his pocket when he bought the lottery ticket. There's a moral of a story here, friends. Be careful what you wish for. The people of Israel thought, oh, I want a king. I need a king. I, I want to be like all of these other nations. They only needed one true king. Application point number four. We need to beware of our own hardness of heart. Beware of our own hardness of heart. By the way, I'd, um, if any of the children, if you have those binders, um, I originally had six application points. I've combined one of them. So if you're following along a child and going, wait a minute, I have six in here. Sorry, I combined one of them. Beware of our own hardness of hearts. Um, after refusing, or rather after listening to Samuel, the people refused to obey Samuel. And again, remember, this, this is a man who had served the people of God faithfully for decades. He's not some Johnny-come-lately-on-the-scene. So imagine a trusted man like this telling you six times that the king you want is only going to lead to this king taking from you from his own, for his own pleasure. Would you listen to a trusted man like that? Normally, I think we should, right? Somebody who's been a godly influence in our life for decades saying, hey, I've got some serious concerns about it. Normally we would listen to that. But the response of the people of Israel to Samuel can only be described as hardness of heart. They had already made up their mind that they wanted a king, and no amount of persuasive argument was going to change their mind. They were hard-hearted. 
And friends, lest we cast stones at them, we so often do the same thing. We make up our own minds on a particular issue. It could be anything. It could be the roles of women in the church. It could be the distinction between elders and deacons. It could be COVID-19 policies. It could be how, how we choose to live out our pro-life ethic. It could be any number of things, but we make up our mind. It becomes a settled issue and our hearts become hard. But beloved, we need to be careful about that. Let's consider just for example the pro-life ethic for just a moment. I, ho- I hope we all agree that human life, that being made in the image of God is precious and it's worth fighting for. That every life is important. This is part of our church statement of faith. and So we need to agree on that principle. But how we actually live that ethic out may differ from one church member to the next. So for myself, for example, I think it's important to provide assistance to expectant mothers, to new mothers, so that they can know that people are here to help them through their pregnancy and beyond. It's why I volunteer. It's why I give money to the Catherine Foundation. It's an important part of my living out for me a pro-life ethic. Now, others of you may pursue pro-life causes in other ways. So my way isn't the only way is my point. If I thought that my way were the only way, then what would happen is I would think that everyone who's not doing what I'm doing Well, you're not sufficiently committed to this cause, which would lead me then to have a hardness of heart toward you. Am I making sense? Am I tracking? Are you tracking with me? And so we need to be careful about our own hearts. All of us. Just be reminded what Jeremiah says. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Paul tells us that because of, because of our hard and impenitent hearts, we're storing up wrath on the day of God's judgment. Beloved, beware of your heart. Neither your heart nor my heart is infallible. We sometimes try to convince ourselves that we're right about something. And maybe we are right, but maybe we're not. And maybe even when we're not right about something, God allows us to say, oh, go ahead. If you think that's right, I'll let, go ahead. I'll let you have it. Let's see how that works out for you. All the while, we're being hard-hearted. So, friends, listen, where the Bible speaks with clarity, then we can speak with clarity. But where the Bible speaks with less clarity, then we need to be mindful that we have blind spots, or we may have blind spots in our own lives. And those blind spots can lead to, lead to us having a hard heart. That's what ha- that was what's happening here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They had blind spots. They didn't see what they should have seen. That's application point number four. Now our final application is Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the King of Kings. Now, I don't want this to feel like, and I'm sure some of you might be thinking this, right? Yeah, well, you know, here, here goes, here's the obligatory Jesus at the end of the sermon because this is what Christian pastors are supposed to do. Beloved, that's not what I'm doing at all. This is integrally related to the text. Follow with me. Some 3,000 years ago, the people demanded a king for themselves. They wanted to be a king. They wanted to have a king like other nations. They wanted a king to rule over them. History, however, would show us that the people, they wouldn't always follow their king. And more often than not, their kings were ungodly men. Yet their desire for a human king was ultimately a rejection of God as their king. It wasn't enough for them to have God as their king. They, didn't, they, they wanted a king they could see. 
Not a king they couldn't see. They wanted a king they could parade out in front of all the other nations. Now, fast forward a thousand times, a thousand years rather, from, from 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's about, now we're about 2,000 years ago. We're in the first century. Both the northern and the southern kingdoms, they've been destroyed. It's been centuries now. Centuries since the people of God have had a human king sitting on a throne. Other than like some kind of puppet king. The people of Israel are now living under the rule of the Roman Empire. But now God in His grace is giving the people another chance to have a king. And this time it's a king they can see. But this king, for sure, he looks a lot different than those other kings. This king's crown isn't made of gold. This king's crown is made of thorns. This king isn't seated on a throne. This king's been nailed to a cross. And even though this is a king they can see, the people still in large part, what do they do? They reject him. This king, for the most part, isn't being worshipped. This king is being spat upon and ridiculed. But this king, this king is the king of kings. This king is the ruler of the universe. This king is holy and righteous. And he's come to judge both the wicked and the righteous. This king will die on that cross. He'll be buried in a borrowed tomb. And then on the third day, God will raise him up from the dead, never to die again. This king will defeat the ruler of this world, Satan himself. This king will defeat death itself. And this king will defeat our greatest enemy, sin. What's the name of this king? His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. Beloved, do you want a king? I hope you do want a king. But the only king that's going to serve you well is King Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your kindness to us. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless our time. That you would use your word spoken, proclaimed from your written word, your spirit accompanied. Father, I pray that lives would be changed. Lord, if there's anyone here today, even one, one person who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who's never turned from their sin to trust in Jesus, to say that, yes, I need Jesus to be my King. Lord, that today, by Your Spirit, You would convict them of their sin and that they would call out for You and be saved. If, if there's anyone here, they have, perhaps they have a question about that. What does that mean? Lord, that they could come talk to me or perhaps they have a Christian family member they could talk to. Or a friend they could talk to. Or we could point them to what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, it's so important. For those of us who are already in Christ, Lord, Lord, protect us from our hardness of heart. Protect us from thinking that we, we, we've got all the answers already within us. And help us, Lord, to serve you well. Lord, I thank you and I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.